Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. This is the first time Trump cannot really spin his own alternative facts and version of events. Pretty soon, unfortunately, we're going to know people who've lost jobs, who've been affected economically, who've gotten the virus. And that's going to fly in the face of him saying, uh, everything's fine. That's David Pluff. He's the author of A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, a pragmatic handbook for voters getting involved in the 2020 election. Pluff also hosts the Campaign HQ podcast, where he breaks down the latest on the presidential race with campaign managers and political insiders who are closest to the action. And Pluff knows plenty about campaigns. He managed Barack Obama's 2008 presidential run, served as a senior advisor to the president during his 2012 re-election, and advised countless candidates as a partner at a political consulting firm founded by his close collaborator, David Axelrod. We'll talk about Joe Biden's comeback, the political impact of the coronavirus, and how Pluff believes Democrats can defeat President Trump in November. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, you've heard me talk about Cafe Insider, and maybe you've listened to samples of it in this feed. It's a subscription service that helps members make sense of law and politics. And we want to make sure everyone gets an opportunity to participate, which includes students who are eligible for 65% off an annual membership, plus the first two weeks free. No time like the present to give a student in your life, or if you're a student listening, give yourself the gift of understanding. Head to cafe.com student. That's cafe.com student. Hi, Preet. This is Adam from Denver. Uh, my question is about the actions or really the inaction of the House following the closure of the impeachment proceedings. Uh, they don't seem to be following up on any of the potential impeachment witnesses, such as John Bolton, but they also don't seem to be investigating anything else, including Bill Barr's political interference at the DOJ. They haven't sought to hear from any of the prosecutors who resigned from the Roger Stone case. And they also don't seem to be interested in holding any hearings about the botched response to the coronavirus outbreak uh, or any of the other longstanding targets for investigation, such as abuse of office and uh, personal enrichment by Trump's family. And so I was wondering if uh, you had any thoughts about this, about this lack of interest in pursuing their investigative functions. Uh, thanks. I love your show. I love your choice of guests. Please keep the hits coming. Hey, Adam, thanks for your question. You know, there are a lot of things going on, and there are a lot of different issues that the House could be pursuing. One thing I think that's going on is that there's an overwhelming amount of other news. The primaries, that rough contest taking place week after week of primaries and caucuses. You also have the coronavirus, which is a very serious problem in the country. That's taking up a lot of oxygen also. It is true, however, that I have also not seen any push to get John Bolton's testimony. We hear from time to time something about the delay of his book, but to date, neither the House nor the Senate has subpoenaed John Bolton. That is a little bit odd. The House has asked for the testimony of the four Roger Stone prosecutors who withdrew from the case, but no word yet on whether that's going to take place. Another thing that's going on that we've talked about previously on the show is a legal setback the House has suffered in trying to obtain testimony from former government officials. The D.C. Court of Appeals, as we've discussed, basically said, 
that they're not going to get involved in the effort to force or compel former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify. And maybe that part of this is House Democrats are trying to figure out the most effective way forward. As for the coronavirus and oversight of that response, which I think has been inadequate, as we speak, as I'm recording this podcast on the morning of Wednesday, March 11th, there is in fact a House Oversight and Reform Committee hearing that includes, among other people, Dr. Anthony Fauci. There's some argument about whether or not that hearing is going to go as long as the chair, Carolyn Maloney, wants it to go. But that is happening. And I expect you're going to see a lot of oversight, effort, and attention to the coronavirus response. One more thing to look for, which may be interesting, is that to the extent there's going to be additional action with respect to Burisma and Hunter Biden in the wake of Ukraine and in the wake of Joe Biden looking like he might be the nominee for the Democrats, there might be a countermeasure that's been discussed by, among other people, Michael Bloomberg and his advisors. And that is an effort to play, I guess, tit for tat. If Republicans and Trump supporters are going to investigate Joe Biden's son, then it's possible Democrats in the House may choose to investigate Donald Trump's children and financial dealings and benefits they may have gotten by virtue of their relationship to the president. So there's not a lot of time between now and the election. And my guess is that Democrats want to be careful and picky and selective in what they choose to pursue. But you can see one or both of those things happen. Coronavirus and maybe some response to what the Republicans are doing on Burisma. This next question comes in an email from Nate, who says, Hi, Preet. Love the pod. You're an invaluable voice of reason. I was surprised to hear you refer to Lee Harvey Oswald as the alleged assassin of JFK. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your use of the word alleged seemed deliberate. Do you believe in any of the JFK assassination conspiracy theories? Were you respecting the presumption of innocence? Thanks. So yes, Nate, it's true. Last week when I was having the conversation about deepfakes with Professor Fareed, we were discussing a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald and in reference to him, I called him the alleged assassin. No, I do not believe in the conspiracy theories. I do believe that Lee Harvey Oswald is the person who assassinated JFK. I will note, though, that he was murdered before he had the ability to be tried in a court of law. And I guess my habitual training as a lawyer and former U.S. attorney is in that circumstance to use the word alleged. This question comes from Twitter user Paulo Votes Blue, who says, hashtag AskPreet. Tell us how you really feel. Damn, this thread is cathartic. Paul appears to be referring to a Twitter thread that I posted, and it's very rare that I post threads of any kind. I like to keep my tweets to a minimum in terms of length. But I posted one on Saturday night. The first tweet in the thread was, Donald Trump is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on America. Now, a bunch of folks have asked me, including members of my family, why those tweets? Why then? And I'll tell you, you know, I try to remain calm and measured, and I generally am. But there are moments when you do feel overwhelmed by the ridiculousness of the administration, the threats that are coming fast and furious, whether they're economic or health-related or political or damaging to the rule of law. And as I was sitting in front of the television on Sunday evening and hearing the reports about the bottom falling out of the market in the coming days and hearing more and more about the unpreparedness of the administration to respond to the coronavirus and hearing about my own boys' high school closing suddenly because there was a positive case in the middle school in the school district that I live in, I thought back to what the initial response of Donald Trump was. And it was this. On national television, Donald Trump referred to the coronavirus as a democratic hoax. He uses the word hoax to disguise his own ineptitude, to attack his enemies, to put other people down. And it occurred to me that that could be turned on its head because the hoax actually emanates from the White House. So let me end by addressing a bit of news that broke literally as I was walking into the studio this Wednesday morning, March 11th. And that is Harvey Weinstein has finally been sentenced. And there had been some speculation about what the sentence would be. And Milgram and I discussed it on the Cafe Insider podcast. Anne has a lot of experience with these kinds of cases. She was a Manhattan ADA herself. And in our discussion, we thought that he might receive something like six to nine years. Recall that he was convicted on two of five counts with which he was charged by the Manhattan DA's office. And the two counts on which he was convicted were the less serious ones of the five. Based on the law in New York, Weinstein could have gotten as little as five years on the two convictions. But in this case, the judge, James Burke, has imposed a sentence of 23 years on Harvey Weinstein. He imposed 20 years on the count of criminal sexual assault of Miriam Haley and another three years consecutively for rape in the third degree of Jessica Mann. I think a lot of factors probably went into the decision to impose such a high sentence. I think the judge was trying to achieve a deterrent effect. I think the judge was trying to send a message 
I think the judge was not impressed by the lack of remorse shown by Harvey Weinstein. And I think this is a very important milestone in the treatment of these kinds of cases. And by the way, I think credit is due to a lot of different folks, not just the prosecutor's office, for this conviction and hefty sentence. Credit goes to the victims who came forward under very difficult circumstances after having been harassed and abused and careers destroyed, nonetheless came forward and made this kind of conviction possible. Credit also goes to the free press that often gets attacked by the president and by others. In particular, Megan Toohey, Jody Cantor of the New York Times, and Ronan Farrow of The New Yorker, who we've had on the show. And while the 23-year sentence is significant, we have to put it in perspective. Here's a statement released by The Silence Breakers, a group of people who were victimized by Harvey Weinstein. And they write, Harvey Weinstein's legacy will always be that he's a convicted rapist. He is going to jail, but no amount of jail time will repair the lives he ruined, the careers he destroyed, or the damage he has caused. That's true. And one more thing. While justice may have been done in this case, it's not finished because Harvey Weinstein still faces charges in California. And of course, Harvey Weinstein is just one person. We'll know whether these efforts are succeeding when more people like Harvey Weinstein are brought to the bar of justice, convicted, and sentenced. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is David Pluff. He's a political consultant who managed Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Last week, he published A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, a collection of straightforward strategies for getting out the vote this year. He joins me to talk about his memories of the contentious 2008 primary battle between Obama and Hillary Clinton, his hopes for Democratic Party unity, and the uncertain future of primaries and caucuses. We also talk through President Trump's handling of the coronavirus and reflect on the candidacies of the presidential candidates who have dropped out in recent weeks. That's coming up. Stay tuned. David Pluff, thank you for being on the show. Preet, it's great to be with you. So you have a book, a new book, called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. Everyone should carry one of these. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to we're gonna get to this and some of your prescriptions in it in a moment, but I should state for the audience, we are recording uh, a little after 2 p.m. on Monday, March 9th, and all hell seems to be breaking loose. There's a proliferation of coronavirus cases. Schools are closing. Uh, universities are saying they're not going to have face-to-face teaching. 
We're getting lots of stories of more people contracting uh, the coronavirus because there's now testing seemingly for the first time on any kind of scale. And on top of everything else, the bottom of the stock market seems to be falling um, out. This morning, after I think four or five minutes of trading, the New York Stock Exchange halted trading based on protocols because the S&P 500 dropped a full 7% just within minutes. So let me ask you first, uh, David, given your past on the Obama campaign, how much does the last few days feel like the fall of 2008 when the financial crisis was upon us? Is that is that a fair comparison or not? Well, we didn't have the physical health component, but yeah, the uncertainty, uh, every day seeming worse than the last, you know, people really beginning to get concerned about, you know, their jobs and savings. So it does. I mean, you know, we've had plenty of challenges in this country in the intervening 12 years. Um, but that's a long time historically to go from certainly, you know, downturn to downturn if that's where we're headed. But yeah, I, I think it does have a familiar feel. Can you describe for us what was that like? I remember I was working in the Senate at the time. So, you know, we were watching it sort of play by play. There was, I think, a moment where John McCain, did he suspend his campaign in September? He did. 2008, yeah. Yeah. You guys did so not. So that, we did not. And, and you know, folks forget, you know, that was a relatively close race deep into the election. And I think that one of the reasons Barack Obama was able to kind of take a lead he was never going to give up was even though he was the uh, younger person, the less experienced person classically, he looked calm. You know, famously on the day McCain said he was going to s- suspend his campaign, Barack Obama said a president has to be able to learn to do more than one thing at a time. And then, you know, there was the meeting at the White House that McCain pushed Bush to have with all the congressional leaders. McCain uh, did not perform well there. Obama did. Uh, kind of that performance delta leaked out. But for us, what was interesting, you're running a presidential campaign, which is hard enough. And then you have, you know, really from September 15th on, I mean, th- things were deteriorating prior to Lehman. But during that period, I mean, in a way, the presidential campaign almost came secondary. And also from a candidate standpoint, I mean, Barack Obama was talking to Hank Paulson every night. He was talking to economic experts. So, um, you know, this doesn't matter to people, right? But to us, it really made it harder. But, um, you know, you just didn't know what the next day would bring. And I think that's where we're here. And listen, you see, we, we obviously hope for the best in terms of Trump's response to this and our government officials' response. But when he tweets out today on Monday, trying to basically say, hey, the flu kills a bunch of people. Why are people freaking out? We know what's behind that. The only thing this man cares about is himself. And for the first time, you know, on Friday when he was down in Georgia, you know, he didn't look good physically uh, or obviously the crazy stuff he said. And I think it's because he's not concerned about the number of cases or deaths or even the market. You know, he's concerned about his political life. And, you know, this is the first time Trump cannot really spin his own alternative facts and version of events. Pretty soon, unfortunately, we're going to know people who've lost jobs, who've been affected economically, who've gotten the virus. And that's going to fly in the face of him saying, uh, everything's fine. Uh, Don't look over here. We've got it all under control. And so that's the other thing, you know, we saw with Katrina, with President Bush, you know, that's really when, you know, the public lost faith and confidence in him. One of the things that's damaging, Preet, is our presidential campaigns are not covered the way the presidency unfolds, right? It's all like, who's got this policy idea and who's likely to get 51 votes for it? And But at the end of the day, that's all important. Most of what comes into that building, you weren't planning for. And at, at its most basic level, what the American people expect is regardless of the politics, regardless of the inconvenience, they want you to be on top of crisis. And, you know, so far we're a few days into this in terms of Trump really taking the ship of state. And it's probably one of the historically worst performances we've ever seen. Because for among other reasons, you can't, you know, mock the coronavirus. You can't belittle the coronavirus. You can't give it a silly, dumb nickname. And you can't bully the coronavirus. And other people have been making this point. It is what it is. And it's a medical thing. It's not a, an opponent about which you can spin, you know, fables and yarns. And he doesn't know how to do it. Remember, you know, as recently as... A week or two, I lose track of time because everything moves so fast. When there was the first big stock market dip, I think he said, oh, that's because the public finally got to look at who the Democratic (laughs) nominees might be because there was a debate. Well, I don't think there was any debate last night. So it's a downhill rhetorical slide for him. I want to go back to 2008 for a second, see if there are other lessons to be wrung from that. You talked about this meeting that Bush had with both candidates, Obama and McCain. And I remember that. And I, I talked to somebody who was there and you say that the reports of the Delta became known. Part of what I remember hearing was in the difference between the performances of Obama and McCain, 
was not one of, of knowledge or expertise, but one of temperament mm -hmm. that Obama seemed, and I think, you know, became a president of this type as well, sort of calm and collected, you know, no drama Obama. And McCain was kind of fiery and, you know, a little, um, you know, dramatic. Is that fair? And do you think that mattered? Oh, I think temperament for sure, though I think McCain's grasp of both the problem and the solutions was also lacking. I almost feel bad saying this, given, you know, how much we all still love so much yes, about John McCain, but course. it's just a truth. The other thing was it was an unusual meeting because George W. Bush, I remember um, Josh Bolton, who was Bush's chief of staff, calling me somewhat sheepishly saying we kind of have to do this meeting. Um, you know, he didn't come out and say it, but reading between the lines, it's like he's our nominee and he wants to have the meeting. So this was this was not a meeting Bush called. You know, this was McCain saying we all need to go back to Washington and do what's right and, and put this ahead of politics. But he was so he was, you know, you had the Republican leadership for the House and Senate there, but they kind of designated McCain as their spokesperson and leader of that meeting. And, you know, the Democrats did the same for Barack Obama. And McCain, you know, didn't say much, was not really focused on um, driving to a solution. So I think people saw through that it was a stunt. But, you know, the other thing I'd say about that is, you know, people were not supportive of a bailout. The easier politics for us would have been to say, hey, there's a Republican president in office. They've completely messed this out and they need to clean it up. And I think Barack Obama deserves a lot of credit because we didn't even have a conversation about what the right thing to do. It was so clear that we were literally on the precipice. And so that's the other thing I think that that's a good reminder of is when presidents are faced with crises like this, the last thing you can do is think about your own politics. You just can't do it. And I know that a lot of people believe that can't be true that everything these people do is politics. But there is a difference. I've worked on Capitol Hill in senior leadership positions with a lot of local government officials. And local government officials, as you know, do have to handle crisis. But in Washington, it is the executive branch always, no matter whether the politics are good or bad, it's the right time or the wrong time. You've got to be the one that can't just posture in position. You just got to deal with it. And that's the other thing that concerns me about Trump is no matter what you Democrat, Republican presidents for for pretty much the entire, you know, history of the country, with a couple of exceptions, have operated in that way. And Trump, obviously, from day one, when on the day he was, you know, put his hand on the Bible and gave that dark speech, uh, you know, he opened up his presidential reelection campaign. But we see now the terror in his eyes and the terror in his tweets is not for any of us. It's just for him. And I think that is going to be revealed for all to see. Uh, and I think he could be heading to a pretty dark place politically. Did you have a sense back in September of 2008, either at the time or in retrospect, that the inflection point that was sort of negative, and it was quite negative for the country, was for good or ill, ended up being positive for the Obama campaign? And then when I ask you, uh, in parallel, what effect do you think the crisis of the last few days will have on the trajectory of this race? Well, back in 2008, so Lehman was September 15th, I believe, or September 14th. And there was a two-week period then before that, you know, really dark Monday and the first presidential debate, which is another thing where McCain says, I might skip the debate because we all have to be focused on, you know, the financial crisis. And, you know, Obama said there's no more important time for the American people to see us <laughs> because one of us is going to win and have to handle this because clearly it's going to be something that's going to be with us for a number of years. So the crisis itself, you know, probably added a little bit of sense that we needed change. But it really was the performance of the two candidates. And that first debate, uh, as you might recall, was centered on foreign policy. Obviously, we started the debate talking about the financial crisis. So it's like, well, here's the young senator who seems calmer, who's trying to reassure us, who seems to be putting politics second. Uh, and then he wins the event that should have been McCain's strongest event, uh, the debate on foreign policy. So it was those two weeks, I think, where people really for the first time saw Barack Obama fully as someone who could sit in the Oval Office, sit in the Situation Room, you know, go to the United Nations, uh, and they saw him as a president, uh, which now seems we kind of take it for granted. But, you know, P voters still had concern back there. They liked him. They thought he was new. They thought he had changed. But was this too big of a gamble? And then you add Palin's selection to that. You know, McCain became the reckless and the risky choice, and Obama became the safe choice. 
I don't know yet where the politics go on on Trump, and I think that should be secondary in all of our thoughts. But, you know, we we see his approval ratings. Um, We know that, you know, the only thing holding him up into the 40s um, is a statistically healthy economy, although there's lots of people that don't feel great about their own economic situation. So any kind of, you know, sustained hit to the economy, I, I think, will hurt him. But I think what will hurt him even more is just the way he's behaving. I mean, that tweet today where he's basically like, I don't understand it. You know, we have a lot more flu cases, a lot more flu deaths and people aren't freaking out. I mean, that will be uh, part of American history now, uh, a dark part of American history, um, because presidents just don't act this way. He is not up to this moment. And, you know, this is going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. And, you know, I think he can't bluster his way out. But, you know, if nothing else, the American people want to know their president's got it whether they support the person or not, whether they despise the person or not. You know, at those moments, you want to know they've got it. And this guy is about the most unstable presence we've ever seen in that office. So when we think about the other side of the political coin on the Democratic side, you're Joe Biden or you're Bernie Sanders. Put yourself in the position of being on their campaign. What are you saying behind the scenes about how they should address the issue how they should distinguish themselves from each other, not just from Trump. What's the strategy here? It's a really interesting question, Preet. So, so uh, hearkening back to 2008, you know, we still in Barack Obama in interviews and in town halls and in speeches, you know, as the economic crisis got worse, would talk about, you know, health care in Iraq and, and bringing about change in core elements of our campaign. But, you know, you had to really start and emphasize with where the country was, which is, let me tell you, Uh, where I think we are and and what we need to do about it. And so I think Sanders and Biden both need to understand that what Democratic primary voters, much less the American people, are concerned about is what's going on with the coronavirus and and what are we going to do about it and how it affects us. So uh, we're talking Monday. I saw that Joe Biden did an interview with MSNBC. Uh, Bernie Sanders talked about free vaccines. That's good. I mean, I'd actually like to see both of them really kind of narrate Trump's response to this every day. And critique it when it's worth critiquing and remind people, um, you know, what someone who's stable and smart and selfless would do. I think it's a real opportunity. Um, It's too early to know. So we're recording this Monday. We've got some big primaries in our debate on Tuesday night. But there have been some polls to suggest that Democratic primary voters view Biden, maybe not unsurprisingly, because he served as vice president, as the person they would trust most in a crisis. So, you know, just as we've seen in the markets, a flight to safety, um, I think there may be an increasing flight to safety in politics. So I think this is set up exceedingly well for Joe Biden um, to be a calm voice for people uh, so that people can see that actually there's a lot of things we should be doing uh, that we're not doing. Um, Also, I think that will drive Trump crazy, which I'm not (laughs) wild about as a citizen, but it's probably good politics. I'm not running for anything, but I've been getting more angry lately, seeing the ineptitude of the response and the lying about this when we're talking about life and death and the minimizing of it. I went on on a Twitter rant uh, yesterday, but I'm a private citizen and I think that's okay every once in a while. Do the Democratic candidates have to be careful about how they critique the president? Can they be too forceful? Uh, Can they be too meek? Well, I think when he deserves critique both for the response to date and obviously comments like he's made today that are so deeply irresponsible, uh, he deserves harsh and frequent critique. When he's doing something well, like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, actually said he's been pretty satisfied with his discussions with the federal government over the cruise ship. So that's fine. Like, we need to call balls and strikes here fairly. I don't think we should just get in the mindset of we're going to critique everything he does or his administration does. And when they do something smart, you know, not praise that. So, no, the, the health and safety of the American people and our economy need to be front and center. But I don't think he's going to change Right. I mean, this is who he is. Um, And I think the panic that is emerging in him is going to make him behave even more irrationally. Uh, There's going to be days where almost all of his administration and Republicans in Congress are saying one thing and he's saying the other. And one question I have is when does Fox News turn? Well, you know, will they? I don't know. Look, I've been talking to people, some of them on the right and some of them who know people who are Trump supporters. And I wonder how are the Trump supporters reacting to the president's performance on this. And I'll tell you, a lot of them still, as, as recently as Saturday or Sunday, when we're recording, on, we're recording on Monday, you know, they take the view that, yeah, this is, you know, overblown. People are panicking. Uh, there are some Democrats, they claim, are rooting for the coronavirus to spread. They're rooting for a recession. You have, 
you know, stand-up comedian who has a television show who specifically rooted for a recession so that you can get rid of Trump. And so they view all of this through the lens of time and time again, the Democrats said, you know, this is a disaster or that's a disaster, whether you're talking about the Russian investigation or you're talking about Ukraine or you're talking about the killing of uh, Soleimani in Iran. And all of these terrible things never came to pass. And this, here's another example of that. Does that ever, will that break? Well, I think, first of all, the most important actor will be our nominee. And listen, this primary could end up wrapping up sooner than any of us thought a couple of weeks ago, right? So if it is Joe Biden, um, he's going to narrate kind of what the Democrats think about this and how to handle this. And, you know, he's not rooting for a recession. And I think he'll be sober uh, in how he approaches this. So I think that will be helpful because I do worry a little bit about that. But I I do think those um, it shouldn't have been the case. But, you know, whether it was Ukraine, so many things that happens in administration, Charlottesville, where, you know, he did get some criticism, but but, you know, they've stayed unified behind him. At the very least, I think you're going to see people saying he needs to take it easy with the tweeting. And I saw a little commentary from from some conservatives today about this, like what he did today was not helpful. Right. Um, But but I think, you know, to your point, the reality here, Trump's you know, the alternative reality he likes to create. And so if the economy continues right now, we're obviously seeing it in the markets. But when it hits the real economy, you know, and you begin to see layoffs and you begin to see people getting less hours uh, and, you know, somebody who's a conservative knows somebody who lost their job or maybe they did. I think they're going to take it a lot more seriously or, you know, people who've been sick. So, again, I think the reality here, healthcare was always interesting in politics because everybody's a healthcare consumer. Right. And so everybody's got a stake in what's happening with the coronavirus. I think there's a lot of people who felt strongly about Ukraine and the impeachment proceedings, but they didn't have a personal stake in it. We all have a personal stake in what's happening right now. That will be interesting for me to watch. I think I think they won't outright critique him and say he's mishandling this. I think what they'll say is it'd be helpful if he, uh, you know, stopped his rage tweeting. But, you know, if this gets much more serious, and the delta between the leader we need and the leader we have is clear to all, even, even including some of his fanboys. I think you may begin to see that that wall really break for the first time. Can we talk about Vice President Biden a little more? Yes. I want to ask you if you have any concerns about his candidacy and also how you remember first learning about him. You're a Delaware guy. Biden's <laughs> yeah. been a senator from Delaware since, I think, 1867 or something like that. Um, what, what do you make of the current run and do you have concerns? Well, first of all, I first, I think the first time I met Joe Biden, I was working on a, a U.S. Senate campaign in Delaware uh, in 1988 against uh, Bill Roth, uh, famous for the Roth IRA and his St. Bernard's. And Biden, as you remember, when he ran for president, had to pull out because of the plagiarism incident, but then had a very serious aneurysm. And so I was down in Delaware's only got three counties. Uh, Sussex County is the southernmost which is both along the beaches, so, you know, Rehoboth and Dewey, but uh, very conservative uh, in the rest of the county. And there was a big Democratic event there. It was at night, uh, and, and Joe Biden reemerged, and it was the first political event. And, and it was really um, such an emotional event for people because they hadn't seen him in months. Uh, so that's how I first met Joe Biden and saw him. So here's the thing. He, he's doing this largely on momentum, so that concerns me. It's not coupled with the type of money or organization you'd like to see. But he did have a lot of political support. So so what's happening right now is people who had left Joe Biden when he wasn't performing well in debates or Iowa, New Hampshire, have come back to him. And now that it's a two-person race, you know, people are having to choose. And so folks who weren't either with Biden or Sanders, who were undecided or with some of the other candidates, seem to be flocking to Biden in big numbers. So his challenge now uh, is, one, to build the kind of national campaign, including with great digital sophistication, to go up against the Trump machine. No small task you know, really build out his campaign. They've got to hire a lot of staff into Philadelphia, into the headquarters uh, and out into the states, and they've got to get on that pronto. So that means they have to raise the resources to do that and do that in a thoughtful way that builds a good culture. And then he's got to up his performance. So it's been stronger recently. You know, I think his interviews uh, have been stronger. He had a really good CNN town hall. His last two debates were better, although I think we're grading on the curve. And so I know some Democrats generally, no matter who they're for, um, a lot of Biden supporters are worried about the debate on March 15th, the one-on-one debate with Bernie. He needs to do that debate. I mean, he's got Trump looming, (laughs) who's going to be 50 times harder than Bernie Sanders to beat or any candidate. 
given his money and his organization and his obsession with winning. So that's not a knock on Bernie. It's just neither of these candidates are ready um, for the Goliath that's waiting. And um, I think we all want to get a little more confidence if he's our nominee. He's up for this. Now, you know, I helped prep uh, Joe Biden, um, you know, in 2008 and 2012. People forget, I think, sometimes those were one-on-one debates, high stakes, high pressure. Um, He performed well with Palin and Ryan. Even in 2007 and 2008, when he ran and and dropped out after Iowa, he was a very strong debater in that multi-candidate field. So, you know, politics uh, and campaigns are like a decathlon. There's a bunch of different events, right? One of them is the debate event. And that's actually always been a strength of him. So that's where I've seen the biggest delta before between the Biden of yesterday and the Biden of today. And he needs to pick that up. But I also think that You know, the digital side of this concerns me. It would concern me for any of our nominees. It concerns me a little bit more for Biden. So we need to really, I think, do a lot of great work there because what the Trump campaign is doing online is super sophisticated. And, you know, if we end up blowing this race out, it won't matter. But if it's really as close as the last one was, and I think we better assume it is, it can make a difference. Do you think Bernie Sanders can beat Donald Trump in the general election? I think he could, yeah. So I look at um, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And I think Bernie Sanders' economic message there is quite resonant. I think he'd get credit for being consistent his whole life, for wanting to blow up the system. So in that case, it's not 21-year-old college kids supportive of that. It's a 58-year-old iron worker who's fed up. My concern about Bernie would be, so it's less about his ability to win those three battlegrounds. I, I, I have not seen any evidence suggest uh, right now he couldn't do that. But can he put states like Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, and maybe Georgia in play? And the most important decision a presidential campaign makes is where are the battlegrounds? And we as a Democratic Party cannot find ourselves having to win all or almost all of the battleground states. We've got to have seven or eight in play. So we have a higher margin for error if we don't win them all. So that would be my concern about Bernie. But he's been a very strong performer. His debate performances have been remarkably consistent. He's built, obviously, an amazing fundraising community online, strong on-the-ground grassroots volunteer. So if Joe Biden does win this nomination, I mean, I think Bernie will do the right thing, and I think he'll campaign harder than he did for Hillary, and I think he'll really mean it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think he'll do everything. But, you know, Biden's folks ought to hire a lot of the Bernie people because clearly they've run a good campaign. And unification doesn't happen because we demand it. But if, if Bernie becomes a nominee, yeah. he's not hiring in the Biden people, is he? Well, listen, some of the folks doing African-American organizing for Biden, some of the folks who really understand how to do well in suburban areas, God, I would hope so. Maybe he wouldn't. But, you know, I think that's important. There seems to be a lot of antipathy, um, just if you look at social media, between and among campaign staff for Sanders and even campaign staff for Elizabeth Warren and some others. Warren was criticized by a lot of folks simply for having a, a laugh on Saturday Night Live last Saturday. You know, people arguing on Sanders' side, she has time to go on SNL, but doesn't have time to endorse him. Right. Well, listen, first of all, we can overestimate um, Twitter for real life, right? But there's that, no that's doubt for sure. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I've been out on the road for my book tour, you know, in some battleground states. I'm in Pittsburgh today. And, you know, they've been Bernie people in the audience and Biden people in the audience. And, and there's no doubt, you know, it's not going to be kumbaya right away. <laughs> but I think people understand um, the ultimate goal here is to get the menace out of the White House. But you know, primaries, I went, listen, the 08 Clinton-Obama that was not was um, much tougher than this. <laughs> that was not a picnic, right. I mean, God knows if Twitter was around then, but it was not a picnic even given that. And, you know, we, we came together, and, and at the end of the day, I th- if we lose to Trump, I think the number one reason likely is not because we didn't unify. But if that doesn't happen to the degree it needs to, it's a pretty shaky foundation to build a campaign on. So it's going to require a lot of work and thought. And for all of us, by the way, you know, we need if you supported the winner, you need to be super patient. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I think I wasn't as patient back in 08 as I should have been. It was like, hey, we got five months to beat McCain and it was a tough primary. Let's get going. I listened and I, I did a lot of outreach. But you always have to remember, like, I want to hear from you first. What what's bothering you? What did you think was unfair? Uh, we need you. Clearly, if you're the Biden campaign, it's like we don't know how to get the support of young it's like people. Going to counsel. You do. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So after. So to, to take a page from 08. If it ends up being Biden as the nominee and he wins the presidency, should he make Bernie Sanders the secretary of state <laughs> and, <laughs> and vice know. versa? I don't know. I mean, I saw there was some story today, which I'm sure wasn't really anybody in the know in the Biden world talking about potential picks. Like, 
you got to do that thoughtfully and, and, you know, you've got to race to win. So, um, you know, I wouldn't be really thinking about who's going to be in my cabinet till much deeper in okay, the Okay, well, so maybe not the cabinet, but is it your sense or would it be your prediction that both of those campaigns are thinking about the vice president? Well, what they'll have is a process kind of almost disconnected from the day-to-day campaign of people beginning to put together lists and how are we going to vet them and what's the interview schedule. So that doesn't really intensify until you either know you're the nominee or you're pretty sure you are. And then, you know, that's a very exhaustive process. And, you know, the candidate, it's the most personal decision the candidate makes. Um, And it ought to be first and foremost about who you want to serve with you if you win, because history suggests that it doesn't really move voters. That can be exciting to your base. And whether it's Bernie or Biden, I mean, I can't think of a reason why this wouldn't be a woman. You know, to me, it's crazy. We've got lots of talented women out there. I do think that would give a spark. Uh, And we got a lot of women who would be great vice presidents. So you'd have to give me an amazing reason I currently cannot divine for this to be a man, certainly a white dude. I mean, that would be insane to me. Okay, so who are they? Let's 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 go through them. Let's say you're you're advising. uh, I mean, look, people have these perceptions of what these decisions are based on, you know, balanced geographical balance or racial balance. You know, we're talking a little bit about gender balance here. Isn't it the case that, that, a, that a vice presidential running mate never really gets the nominee over the goal line or not? That's exactly right. There's even some political science uh, research lately to suggest that the one time people thought it was 1960 uh, with LBJ in Texas was overwrought. But the, the, it can hurt you politically, as we saw with McCain. So that's exactly right. Voters are thinking about the two people at the top of the ticket. So now both of our finalists here are, you know, 177, 178. So the threshold is a much more important decision now, right? And activists. I want to make sure, you know, they pick somebody who could do the job. So that that threshold is exactly right. So listen, we are blessed with so many, um, you know, you got Senator Cortez Masto from Nevada, former attorney general, Governor Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan. You've got Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Val Demings from Florida, Amy Klobuchar. Um, you know, a lot of men too, but we are blessed with a lot of great contenders. So I think this will actually end up being a hard choice because there's no obvious person. What would you make of a Sanders-Warren ticket? Um, well, Wouldn't you know, happen. I, think, happen? Could that happen? I don't think it would no. happen. I don't know. I mean, Bernie said he would only pick somebody's Medicare for all. Now, of course, you know, his hardcore supporters now think Elizabeth is not real Medicare for all, <laughs> uh, you know, because she wants a longer transition period. So I don't know. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, it's so much about personal. Listen, I, here, I'll give some, I'll even give Trump credit for this. Like, you know, he didn't pick Mike Pence because he was some incandescent political performer. <laughs> you know, he also had to meet some bar of right. like this, some, somebody who could do the job, bit Bushwood Cheney. I mean, so the two times, you know, McCain and Palin, um, McCain paid a price for that. And by the way, when people were voting against McCain, they weren't voting against Palin. They were voting against him. It's like we're heading to maybe a Great Depression and let's look reckless. That makes me worry about your decision making. And John Kerry, as you know, has spoken to, you know, he believes he made a mistake picking John Edwards. He would have rather picked Dick Gephardt. That's kind of where his head is. But they were convinced they needed a spark. So you got to think about 90 percent of this is if I win. Who do I want to be in that position? Because this this job is not a bucket of spit anymore. It's a real job. And this person's in your life every hour of every day. So you want to get along with them. You want to trust them. You want to make sure it's somebody who will give you really candid advice, who will disagree with you when that's required. So um, I think the campaign part of it is a small part of it. You don't want to make a mistake. And, you know, I think the bonus would be here. I don't think a swing voter in Wisconsin is going to vote differently in our presidential election because of who Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders picks. But it can excite all of us. Like, I know I want to be excited uh, on the day this is announced. Any chance it'll be announced earlier than in other years? Because people have been suggesting that would give, you know, Biden or Sanders a shot in the arm. Well, I don't think you'll see it in the primary. I think if, if Biden ends up you know, looking like he's going to secure this nomination earlier than we might have thought. You know, he'll put that in motion, as Bernie would, I assume, if if we're surprised here. You know, the conventions uh, later in July, the earliest I think you'd probably do it is towards the end of June, because um, you got to take your time. There's vetting and really serious vetting. And then there's all the discussions that the nominee uh, and their senior team will have with these various candidates. So it just takes time. So let's talk about your book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And we talked about some of the the things that are in the book already, but this seems to be something that a lot of people are asking about. I see it in my Twitter feed all the time. People wanting to know, you know, what they can do. And sometimes there are people who live in swing states, but sometimes there's people who are here in New York where 
it's a foregone conclusion that New York will go for whoever the Democratic nominee is. You have a lot of prescriptions in here. Why don't you give us sort of the top line, one or two things that someone who's listening to the show who really cares about the country and, and wants to defeat Donald Trump, what can they do? Right. So, Preet, the spirit to me is more important than the specifics. I'm, I'm proud of the specifics I've captured here. But, um, you know, the spirit is there is no uh, magic cavalry that's going to emerge. That is all of us. And this is going to be a close election. So make your own plan for this election. So first, if you live in a battleground state, so I was in the last two days in North Carolina and Florida, and saying the whole world's counting on you. So if you hadn't been a precinct leader before uh, in Hillary's campaign or Obama's, consider doing that. If you're doing four hours a month, can you do 12? Uh, If you haven't been doing a lot of uh, social media where you're sharing content and fighting against information, do that. You know, if you don't live in a battleground state, you know, obviously you can give money. But the point I make in the book is as as important as that is and we need people to do it, it's the easiest thing to do. It just takes a couple seconds. So, one, social media is the new battlefront. Use your social networks. If you understandably might have gotten rid of them because you were frustrated by them, you need to sign back up through November 4th. Create your own content. Share content that motivates you. I think in 16, so much of us, what we shared on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram was anti-Trump. And we need to share more positive, both ideas. If we see a great interview by our nominee, share it, create content. Best example, if you have a neighbor or friend who voted for Trump last time who's now going to vote Democrat, ask if you can take a 15-second video and, and post that. There's postcard writing that's super effective. There's phone calls. If you live in New York and you can drive to Pennsylvania, there's not really a good reason for you not to do that a lot. So well, what do you mean postcard? Ownership. What do you mean postcard writing? Well, there'll be postcards. Uh, the campaign will say, here's people that we think are swing voters or who are registered, who we're concerned might turn out. Well, you write them a postcard and tell them – Um, what the election means to you and how we're counting them. I'd love to see postcards written to all the volunteer leaders in the battleground state from people like you and me who are in New York and California, you know, saying, Gretchen, I just want to thank you for all you're doing in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. (laughs) You know, we're counting on you. So so there's a lot you can do. Um, The other message I, I make, whether it's posting on social media, knocking doors, making phone calls, just embrace the fact that it can seem wildly inefficient, <laughs> you know, that you may only have an impact on one or two people per shift. And that's OK, because if you think about your individual effort in the aggregate and five or 10,000 people are also doing it that day, that's how we can create in each of these states hundreds of thousands of voters uh, who may turn out, which is much bigger than our win number. So I hear that a lot, understandably, which is I went door knocking in Wisconsin and I literally think I only impacted two people. That's okay. Just go into it expecting that and know that like the fate of the world's right in front of us. We're all going to do our part. So so if the average person is trying to figure out who they're trying to reach and they're like, well, you know, I have members of my family or neighbors who are pro-Trump. Should I be spending my time trying to convince them or should I be trying to convince the people who are on the fence and they're leery of the Democrat? They don't love Trump or people who you know are supportive of the Democratic nominee opposed to Trump but you're worried they're not going to get out and vote. If you're thinking about those three categories of people, to the extent people are being so rational about their time, what's your advice? I'm glad you asked that, Preet. So I would not spend a a minute on anybody who's hardcore Trump. I talk about this in the book. There's formal activity and informal, and we all need to do both. So informal is your friends and families and colleagues. If you have somebody who's currently not registered uh, and doesn't want to register, you need to find a way to convince them to register. Somebody who says they're not going to vote is a huge target, or maybe they might vote third party, which was such an important reason Trump won was the high third party margin. And then there's a true swing voter who's conflicted. And part of what I capture in the book is we're going to win this election uh, both with swing voters and with people who are at risk of not voting. Uh, these aren't people who are going to be having our nominee's bumper sticker on their car or truck. They're cynical about politics. And I actually use this phrase in the book. Somebody who's holding their nose in voting <laughs> or is apathetic in voting counts the same as me or you. And I think sometimes we, as Democrats, we want to get up on the soapbox and, right. and preach. <laughs> and we want to say, you know, no, no, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, they're going to be on Mount Rushmore. I think the conversation that may work is, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not super excited either. Okay, but let me just tell you something. You care about climate change. They'll get back in Paris and they'll get rid of Trump. I hope they do more than that. If that's all they do, like we got to meet people where they are, not where we wish they were. So that's important. And then the formal volunteering you'll do through the campaign, you know, they'll have great data. And so the list you'll be calling, if it's good, will be 
only people they're concerned who um, are true swing voters or people who may be flirting with third party vote or that massive group of people who are registered who aren't sure they're going to vote. So those are the key categories. And in all of the battleground states, um, there's more of those types of people than we like. So whenever I get, um, you know, concerned about our ability to beat Trump and, and I think he's going to be hard to beat, I just remember there's more than enough people in all the battleground states, particularly when we do some smart registration over the next few months to beat him. Our problem is execution. And the best debate answer in the world and the best ad from our nominee will not be as effective as the right human being talking to the right person who's conflicted about the right thing. (laughs) You know, the power of that is still the most effective conversation in politics. And I think we all need to take ownership of that and kind of make our own plan for activity in this election. I'll give you an example. I live in San Francisco now. Um, Most of my friends out there aren't in politics, but but a lot of them are progressive and they want to know what they can do, right? And so we talk about that. And I say, have you made your plans to go to Arizona? Well, I haven't. I'm not sure. I'm like, I really don't want to talk to you. Like, you kind of deserve Trump. (laughs) You know, if you're not planning to, you know, spend 36 hours on the ground in Arizona, you can't make that happen. Um, You know, that's what it's going to take. But should they go to Arizona to work on the general or should they go to Arizona to work on, you know, candidate Kelly's candidacy for uh, for the Senate? Well, you 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 kind of get a twofer there. And what's interesting is two of the, the, I think, just essential battleground states in the presidential race, Arizona, North Carolina, are now must wins in the Senate race as well. So uh, the energy we need to bring to both of those states, you know, we can win the presidency without winning either of them if we if we do what we need to in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona. But to me, I'd rather not risk that. But we know we got to win both of those Senate races. So you get the I think you get the real pleasure of helping out on both. I'm going to go back to something you said a second ago and and see if you could amplify it. So I'm on social media. I have a mixed I have mixed feelings about it. Um, there's a lot of toxicity, but there's good You're stuff. Quite that talented too. at it, well, though. But yes, yes. I have my moods. Uh, but you know, most of what I see, and maybe just the people that I follow, uh, and I do this myself, it's saying negative things or critiquing the president. And I thought you said a couple of minutes ago that the more productive thing to do is for there to be positive posting about the candidate you support. Why is there so little of that? And and, and what do you give us some examples of things that might be productive? That and also, by the way, maybe you know people would um, would be in a better mood if they tweeted more positively. Right. Well, because, you know, you see today, I mean, even if if Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders gave the Gettysburg address today, you know, given what Trump, you know, tweeted about the coronavirus, you feel like you've got to express your anger as a citizen before you even do as a Democrat. Right. So he drives a lot of that. So I'm not saying if Trump does something outrageous and you want to comment on it, you shouldn't comment on it. But so if if our nominee gives a really compelling interview on Jimmy Kimmel, and it may be like 30 seconds, that's not even about a policy, right? It could be something, you know, Joe Biden talking about, you know, Bo or something. And, and you, you send it out. You, you see a great infographic they put out about the difference between a Democratic president in the next four years and Trump for four more years on the environment and climate change. Send that out. And I think what you'd say is, you post this on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter and say, um, this has me excited, right? If you're out volunteering, you know, capture that on social media, do a, an Instagram story and say, I had a really great time today. I think I made a difference in Pennsylvania. So I think we have to realize that we miss that. I know I missed that in 16. It was all anti-Trump. Um, and that's where all the energy was. So I think it's also important because I think there's a sense in our party right now that no matter who we nominate, you know, it's not the second coming of Abraham Lincoln or John Kennedy or even Barack Obama. <laughs> and so we don't have a savior. So I think we have to work to show people that we can still be excited. What about this other issue that is of increasing concern? I had a, a prominent professor on the podcast last week talking about deep fakes, and he made the point that these things can upend elections because there's a lot of mistruth out there. And even before you worry about deep fakes, you got to worry about shallow fakes. And I'll give you an example of something that happened just this past weekend, and millions and millions of people saw this. They saw a grossly unfairly edited video of Joe Biden where Trump supporters are trying to make Joe Biden look foolish by cutting a clip in which he is saying, we can only reelect Donald Trump. And that's playing on an endless loop, I think millions and millions of views. When what Joe Biden actually said was, in totality, we can only reelect Donald Trump if, in fact, we get engaged in the circular firing squad here. What's the role of people in trying to police the truth about the candidate? Right. Well, that can be frustrating. So you have to do both. You've got to share the positive content, the positive sentiment, what's motivating you. But if you see something like that, you know, so you're 
you know, Uncle Jared, you know, post that and say, see, this guy's, you know, he's senile, he's not ready, you know, fire back with the actual lengthy clip. And, you know, there were conservative voices who were criticizing that as well uh, and thought it was deceptive and put that and say, you know, it's just a lie. So when you see something like that, I think the mistake we can make either on positive or negative is um, that will be handled in the upper precincts of like a campaign headquarters, right? Uh, but I, I think we all have to understand that it can seem like whack-a-mole. But if you see that in one of your feeds and, you know, a friend or a family member is pushing it around, you got to jump in there. By the way, maybe nobody in that exchange will change their mind, but other people will see you doing it. And they'll say, you know what, I'm going to do that too. So we've got to fight back. I'm actually less concerned. I am concerned about deep fix. The things I'm most concerned is the disinformation and the lies. I mean, I've seen focus group results recently in some battleground states where swing voters, so these are not Trump MAGA partisans, are saying, you know, I'm concerned that I might not be able to eat steak anymore if the Democrats win, <laughs> right. right? Or this kind of stuff, you know, takes hold. You know, we used to think if it, you know, if it didn't lead the New York Times or the nightly news, you shouldn't pay attention to it. Anything now um, can spread around the world in a minute uh, and infect phones and computers in battleground states. So we just got to be on this. And I know that's a lot to ask of people, but, um, you know, it's only seven or eight months uh, and it's only the fate of the world. So we all have to get into the game. <laughs> it's, it's just life and death. So let, let me ask you a question about how the game of politics should be played, particularly when it comes to fighting back. And we talked about that a little bit just now. How do you today complete the very famous phrase? When they go low, we don't go as low, but we do. We're, we're <laughs> but, willing to throw you're, some you're no kidney longer punches. Saying we go high. Yeah, you're no well, longer saying think, we go high. No, I still think we need to motivate people. I don't think we have to lie to win. By the way, if we lose this election, I may revise that thought. But I think we can win, but by being tough, talking about you know going after. Um, you know, Hunter Biden, you right. know, I'd put all three of his kids squarely in the sites and hopefully Mike Bloomberg will do this and run tens of millions I was of dollars ask of advertising. I mean, he's, he's hinted at it. Tim O'Brien, who advises him, has put out some tantalizing posts on social media saying, you're going to learn a lot more about his kids and his son-in-law. Fair game for you. Absolutely is fair game. You know, Trump's mental uh, capacity, fair game. You know, his sexual assaults, fair game in advertising. Like, it all's fair game. Like, this is nothing's more important in the history of the world than who we elect as president in 2020. I mean, you know, maybe 1860 rivals it in terms of import. So, yes, sometimes I think we as a party, you know, would rather be right than to win. I think you can be both. But, you know, you listen, Barack Obama inspired people. He was, is such an enormous uh, person of great character. We never lied, but we ran tough campaigns and it's what you have to do. So we do not have to follow them. And I think Biden uh, lately has had some really great language around this, like just because they're going that low, we don't have to go that low. But that doesn't mean we can't win. And we better not assume people will just discount things uh, that are so crazy. Like, we can't believe anybody would believe that. You mean, you know what they're if Biden's the nominee, I mean, they're going to treat him as a socialist, the so same as Bernie. It'll be like your taxes are going to triple if you're a worker. You will not be allowed to eat meat anymore. You're never going to be allowed to fly on an airplane. And we'll laugh at this. Are they going to say know, Biden's from Kenya, too? Well, they might. Um, maybe that would help Biden, actually. He needs a little, make him a little more exotic. But I, I think that um, it's a great question. And, you know, for me, there's like in campaigns, there's, you know, your main messaging, your economic message, differences on healthcare and taxes. But you have to understand, particularly with social media, there's all these sideshows and you need to create your own sideshows and fight back on theirs. And Trump's a bully. I was reminded, Preet, I went on Fox and Friends earlier in the week uh, to talk about my book. And, you know, we had a talk about one of the reasons people have to get so involved in the election uh, is because Fox is like Trump's Pravda. You know, it's his happy place. And, you know, you know, one of the hosts in particular really took offense at like that. But the other reason I think we need to be tough is bullies don't like to be bullied. Right. I mean, Donald Trump will like tweet when he sees Donna Brazil on Fox. This is how easily he's disturbed. So I just think we need to be in his grill uh, in ways that make him uncomfortable. There's a, there's some psyops around this, which is how do you destabilize your opponent? Uh, but yeah. You're going psyops uh, I, now. Wow. Well, I think it's really important. <laughs> I really think it's important. And he's he's so easy to read, right? It, it's not hard to figure out how to throw he and his team off their game. I do worry about that. Like one is, you know, our nominee doesn't have a lot of time to put that together. The Bloomberg effort to me is a huge part of this because those guys take no prisoners. They got a lot of money. They're super sophisticated. Now, they'll have to be outside the nominee's campaign. So that's not as effective as being in, but it can be effective. 
But yeah, I, I think this is really important. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take our mind off talking about the trade war and the effect it had in Wisconsin, that we're in a manufacturing recession right now in large parts of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Obviously, healthcare is a debate we have to win. I'm not suggesting we don't do those, but I think we also have to understand that uh, we got to fight super hard. We don't have to fight as dirty as they are, but um, you know, we're not going to win the presidency of this guy by playing by different rules, in my view. Who should be doing that kind of tough attacking. I mean, it seems to me that Trump has broken what was an unwritten cardinal rule of politics, which is you stay sunny, the candidate himself stays sunny and positive like Reagan did. And then the other people muddy themselves by saying the terrible things. Here, Trump is the guy who does the bullying and the name calling and everything else. Should Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders take that upon themselves because it's their adversary who's doing it? Or can you really delegate that down? Right. Well, you you know, that is authentic to Trump. So the the one thing you don't ever want to do in politics is be inauthentic. So um, I don't think either of those guys are necessarily, you know, triumph the insult dog, right, or comics. So, <laughs> right. like, I think, you know, they can throw punches and they should. And I think when they're fighting on behalf of people and their outrages on behalf of people, Americans who are being harmed by Trump, that's great. But, you know, I don't think they should trade insult for insult. But that's where, you know, your campaign, number one, outside groups, number two, all of us who have audiences, number three, have an ability to do that. So, um I don't think necessarily Trump or Sanders should match Trump blow for blow. They need to be tough, and particularly in the debates. And I know Trump's saying he's not going to debate, and maybe he won't. I found it hard to believe as much as he likes the spotlight that he ultimately won't. And so in those, I think, you know, you do not want to show one whiff of weakness. Um, And so, you know, those are going to be geriatric cage matches uh, of kind of historic proportions. They're going to be something to watch. But I think at its core, you want to drive your message and you want to make people think you're going to run through a wall to fight for them. That's sadly the campaign within the campaign Trump won last time. He was going to fight for working people. But you cannot look weak. And that will be his fundamental debate strategy, which is I want to bring either Biden or Sanders to heal. And Trump's tough in that way because, it, as you just said, he will say anything. Uh, he will go anywhere. You know, he'll throw ordinance at you um, that you couldn't believe he would do. Remember when he brought all the women to the oh, second yeah. debate? <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, by the way, everybody thought that was outrageous. And, you know, I, I don't know whether it was smart or not, but his I people think it loved probably— it. His people, his people loved, loved it. it. And it was yeah. a distraction. Look, you can see him at a debate with Joe Biden, even while he, Trump himself, slurs his words and says things that make no sense— you can see him at the same time in the same evening attack the mental acuity of Joe Biden. He has no shame on that. And, and his people, it seems sometimes, they buy it. You know, the, the utter projection of every flaw, they, they seem to buy it. Let, let me ask you this question. So we're left with basically Sanders and Biden on the Democratic side, but, but putting them aside for a moment, what, what if any other campaign on the Democratic side were you impressed by and you thought showed something special and that you think means that they will be a force in the future in the Democratic Party? Actually, a lot of them, Preet. I mean, so Pete Buttigieg, who went from nowhere, didn't even make it to the finish line in a DNC chairs race and ends up, you know, winning Iowa, almost winning New Hampshire and inspiring so many people, number one. Andrew Yang, so he didn't produce a lot of votes, but built a really great organization and I think was the only candidate really talking about the things this country is going to be facing in 10 or 20 years. I have been disappointed about the debates. They've been very here and now. I think Andrew Yang's talking about how do we prepare for some things that are likely to happen. I thought Elizabeth Warren was just probably the most consistent performer in every event, interviews, town halls, debates. And I was really impressed by that. And I know she built uh, a great organization. So and, you know, Amy Klobuchar showed such enormous, um, you know, grit um, to, to produce that finish in New Hampshire. So, you know, what's interesting, probably the least impressive just from like a campaign standpoint, you'd say is Biden. But on the other hand, this is about getting votes. <laughs> you know, I, I would say this before, you know, this primary and others. People ask me, like, what do you think? I'm like, I may have my opinions, but ultimately spin polls, number of Twitter followers, number of contributions. All that matters is votes. And Biden's shown the ability to bring about votes. And, you know, Bernie's obviously got an enviable base. He hasn't been able to grow. But I think I think we had a lot of talent in this field. I think we got a lot of talent um, potentially as part of the vice presidential selection. And we saw in 2018 all those remarkable people uh, who won. And I think the lesson there should be Mayor Pete again showed us. Barack Obama showed us. People always talk about what's the right time to run for president. I think very few people ever run too early. You run too late. 
Like, what if Barack Obama had listened to most people and didn't run in 08 and ran in 16? You know, he would be into his third term as a U.S. senator. Um, and all those barnacles of Washington would right. be a um, lot of bad setting votes. in. So, right. Mayor Pete showed, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe Mayor Pete will be president. But he ran at the right time. That generational contrast really worked for him. How is this ideological debate going to work out in the Democratic Party? You know, between, say, on one side, to oversimplify it for a moment, the progressives, Warren Sanders, some others, versus the moderates that are roaring back after Super Tuesday in support of Biden. In, in the longer term, for eight years from now, what's the Democratic Party going to look like? What's the soul of the party? Well, first of all, it's interesting. I mean, we say moderates. I mean, you know, think about just how much the party has moved just in the last eight years in a much more progressive direction. So, you know, we have, I think, you know, extremely liberal, very liberal, uh, mostly liberal. Like, you know, there's a few moderates and conservatives. So let, I think that's important to understand. But I think for this election, hopefully, we will, most of us anyway, uh, believe that um, getting Trump out is uh, such a contribution to global history in this country that we'll unify to do that. I do think that this is a fascinating question. I think we'll see it play out in primaries in 2022 and 2024. You'll see it play out in Washington. And, you know, I'm getting way over my skis here because I am not a, a political scientist uh, by training, just play one on TV. You see in both the Republican Democratic Party, at, at what point does the two-party system not suit people? Will all these varied ideologies work in two parties, right? Are we going to head to a place where we have multiple parties, uh, which is more similar to, you know, other Western democracies? So that is interesting to me because I think the tension is real. And, you know, there was a while there where the Democratic primary electorate was very much connected to uh, moderate voters in general elections, right? And that's why the Republicans were paying a price, you know, to, to win their nominations, whether that's Senate or president, you had to go so far to the right that when you scrambled back, you know, you had positions that the middle of the electorate was really repulsed by. And I think you've seen a similar move in the in the Democratic Party, a lot of energy there. So uh, I think it's going to be one of the more interesting stories in our country over the next 10 years, not just in the Democratic Party, Republican Party. So I think there'll be a piece of some sort uh, for this election. Um, but even in 22, you know, you see a lot of folks who might win House races this time or some of those remarkable Democrats, a lot of women who won in 18 or are more moderate. Are they going to get primaries? And how does that affect not just our politics, uh, but how those candidates react and behave in office? So I think that this is really an important question. Uh, and, you know, my view, again, it's, it's an amateur's take on this, but I'm not sure the two-party system is sustainable for like another generation. David Pluff, thank you for your time. Congratulations on the book. You should all pick it up. It's a citizen's guide to beating Donald Trump. Thanks again. Preet, real uh, privilege and honor to be with you. Thank you, sir. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with David Pluff and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Pluff. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.